Hello, this is Congressman Jim Clyburn, and I would like to welcome you to my podcast, Clyburn Chronicles. I've always been a lover of history. I see this platform as a way to connect history with the politics of today. This is so important because as Judge Santiano once said, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Each episode, my guest and I will have a conversation about the lessons of the past, the politics of the present, and how we must learn from those experiences to help shape the future. Thank you for taking time to listen, and welcome to Clyburn Chronicles. Hello, I'm Congressman Jim Clyburn. Welcome to another edition of Clyburn Chronicles. August 28th will mark 60 years since the 1963 March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. That march became the zenith of the 1960s Civil Rights Movement, when peaceful protests were increasingly met with violence from law enforcement and white segregationists. Despite these attacks, over 250,000 people marched on Washington, D.C., demanding equal civil and economic rights for blacks and urged lawmakers to act. Today, 60 years later, the fight for equal rights and justice continue. And I can't think of a more appropriate person to speak with as we approach this anniversary than my guest today, Martin Luther King III. Let me tell you a little bit about Martin Luther King III. He is the eldest son of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and Coretta Scott King. He grew up in Atlanta, Georgia, and graduated from Ohio's College. In 1986, he was elected to the Fulton County Board of Commissioners, where he represented more than 700,000 Georgia residents. In 1997, Martin was elected president of the legendary Southern Christian Leadership Conference, where his father served as the first president. Today, Martin, along with his wife, Andrea Waters King, lead the Drum Major Institute, a nonprofit community action group formed in 1961. The Drum Major Institute embodies Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s vision of ridding the world of the triple evils of poverty, racism, and violence through advocating for peace, justice, and equity. Martin is an ambassador for global human rights and has devoted his life to shepherding and building upon his parents' legacy. Martin, thank you for joining me today. 
let's get into the 1963 March on Washington for jobs and freedom. Some people don't realize that it wasn't just one group organizing that march, but there were six. Share uh, with our listeners how that march came to be. What were these groups demanding? So first and foremost, as, as you know, um, the great, the late great A. Philip Randolph as a, a labor leader uh, over the Pullman Porters uh, uh, Union and, or, or as an organizer, he had been attempting to do major marches since 1941. Uh, this, of course, was 1963, so almost 20 years earlier. And he and many others uh, had been doing a lot of things around civil and human rights in our nation. Uh, by the time 63 came around, the climate was very uh, volatile as the Birmingham movement was going on, going on uh, where uh, most of the South was, was deeply segregated. But in Birmingham, there was a specific movement that dad was engaged to end up leading. Uh, dad's leadership uh, on the national stage perhaps began in 1955 when Miss Rosa Parks sat down on the bus. And um, when she sat down uh, all over that particular city, black folk for 385 or 81 days chose not to ride buses. Dad, Rosa Parks was the heroine, we all know of that drama, and dad was the chief spokesperson. And so he was engaged in, in, in civil and human rights leadership as the pastor of the Dexter, it, it now is called the Dexter Avenue uh, King Memorial Baptist Church. It was Dexter Avenue Baptist Church at that time. Um, but Birmingham as a specific campaign, he and his team were fighting to, to, to really roll, not roll back, to eliminate and abolish uh, segregation, to desegregate. Uh, even young children, over a thousand, were arrested in Birmingham. I, I guess people said, maybe it's all right to, to arrest, uh, you know, men, maybe even women. But with ABC, CBS, and NBC rolling their cameras and you arrest I mean, our most precious resource, our children, what does that say about our nation? So the march came together because you had a a number of seasoned and older leadership. Dad would have been among the younger and newer leadership. He was not the youngest. I think your uh, your late and former great colleague was probably the youngest, and that's John Lewis. Absolutely. He would have been somewhere around 21, and he was representing the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Congressman, I thought you were a part of SNCC, but uh, is that- Absolutely, absolutely, okay. John and I. In fact, uh, I'm glad you mentioned that because uh, I met John Lewis and your dad on the same day in October 1960. And it was the second meeting of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, SNCC, there on Mohouse campus. Earlier that year, we had met up at Shaw University uh, in Raleigh, North Carolina, and things had uh, gotten awry, as you know. Uh, every campus was doing its own thing. We were doing our stuff there in Orangeburg. Uh, people in North Carolina were doing their thing. People in Atlanta doing their thing, Nashville. We said, we need to coordinate this thing. Let's bring it all together. Bring these young 
uh, idealistic people uh, together, uh, and we uh, came to Atlanta, asked your dad to meet with us, and he did. And uh, he agreed to meet with us for an hour, 10 o'clock in the evening. Well, uh, that hour turned to two hours, then three hours, and four hours. It's almost four o'clock in the morning when we came out of that room. I call that meeting my Saul to Paul transformation. Wow. So your dad and John Lewis came into my life on the same day, and I ain't been the same since. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is, that, that's amazing and a great story that uh, must be told over and over again because I, I'm, I'm sure I hope, uh, I know your constituents in South Carolina know that. But the whole country, because of what we're doing now, perhaps uh, needs, to, and it helps to understand how you have consistently uh, provided moral leadership through your years of Congress because of what uh, what you were engaged in, uh, you know, over six, over sixty years ago. But as you know, there also was the national, the uh, the Urban League uh, under uh, Whitney Young, and the NAACP uh, under. Uh, Roy Wilkins, and the Congress of Racial Equality under James Farmer, and uh, as I said, SNCC, SCLC, which Dad was, of course, uh, right. president of, and I'm leaving somebody out. Um, there's one more. Oh, the National Council of Negro Women, right. uh, Dr. Dorothy Height, uh, and then a whole host of others under that, because labor was involved as well. Absolutely. Um, but what was probably most interesting for me, what I heard, was how amazing after Dad had delivered his speech. There were many speeches that day, and many of them were great speeches. Uh, perhaps because of the intervention of God, Dad's speech seemed to stand out. And maybe that's why people think it was just him, but it really was a cadre. He could not have done that uh, himself. It had to be many organizations working together uh, to lay the foundation and groundwork for our freedom. I often say Dad was talking about freedom, justice, and equality for all humankind. Now, the tragedy is 60 years later, instead of us moving in a seriously forward direction, it does not mean progress has not been made in 60 years, but it certainly means we are far from, in my judgment, the dream that he envisioned for our nation, the, the blueprint that he set out. And what I do know is that a few good women and men and a few good people in our society can create the changes that we need even now. Probably the most important issue, and I know, Congressman, we, all, we say this, all of us say this every year, this election is the most consequential. Uh, I really, at one point, I said that, of course, about President Obama, and it was at that time. I said that about President, uh, well, President, the, the last administration. I don't like to call his name about him. Having, <laughs> the fact well, just, that just call the number 45. Uh, number 45 was certainly one of the most consequential because Many of the things that we're now fighting to regain would not have been struck down by the, the Supreme Court. In 2013, of course, uh, the crowning jewel, the Voting Rights Act, was struck down in this country 
with all this biasness that still has been going on and has got worse. In 2020, um, you know, there was a lot of things happening. And, and actually 2021, when the insurrection occurred, uh, all these laws were put on the books, draconian laws, making it harder for people to vote. In 2022, um, uh, women's reproductive rights struck down, had been there for 50 years. And in 2023, now affirmative action uh, struck down. And the biggest issue in my mind is that, number one, if we had elected, you know, uh, Secretary of State Clinton, there would be a different court and we would not be fighting to regain what we lost. And my only point is that just a few more of us should have been voted. I'm not blaming any one group of people, but I'm saying that a voteless people is a powerless people. Martin King Jr. told us, and the short step that we take to that ballot box could make the difference. And we did. We struck out. Now, I'm saying that to say as we get into 24, this election is going to be super sequential also. That's where my highest point was. Absolutely. No question about it. It is going to be very consequential. And I'm glad that you brought that up. But let me just say, uh, for the sake of all my listeners here and anybody else who may uh, want to capture uh, this conversation for whatever reason, there's nothing Protestant about this. We, in 1954... Brown v. Board of Education, uh, that opinion was handed down by the Supreme Court. It was a 9-0 opinion. The Chief Justice, Earl Warren, was a Republican. And there were Republicans and Democrats, more Republicans than Democrats, handed down a 9-0 decision in favor of African-Americans' rights, voting rights, equity. That's what Brown v. Board of Education was all about. We have now gone from a 9-0 Supreme Court in favor of African-American rights to a 6-3 against these civil rights. So there's nothing possible about this. Earl Warren was a Republican uh, governor of California. Dwight Eisenhower was a Republican, so there's nothing uh, to be partisan about. And I tell people all the time, uh, we're talking about the world of politics here. Uh, so it's politics, you determine uh, the degree of uh, what the partisanship ought to be. And so we come to this not so much because of partisan politics, but because of this track toward a more perfect union. That's what that march is all about. Jobs, uh, getting rid of poverty, uh, equity, uh, dignity. That's what it was all about. And when you look at the speech, uh, a whole long before uh, Dr. King talked about his dream, he laid out a blueprint. Uh, He made it very clear in that speech. In fact, when I talk about that speech, uh, I seldom talk about the, the dream. Uh, that was a portrait. Uh, I'm talking a lot about him, and I'm going to read for our listeners today, because this is what you're going to be talking about 
uh, come Saturday when I was sitting there listening to you. He said this, in a sense, we've come to our nation's capital to cash a check. And the architects of our republic wrote the magnificent words of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. They were signing a promissory note to which every American was to fall heir. This note was a promise that all men, yes, black men, and as well as white men, would be guaranteed the unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And we all have expanded our, our expressions these days to make sure we bring women into this. But this was not about dreaming. Uh, this was about fulfilling the dream, the American dream. That's what this, uh, this is all about. And that's what you're going to be talking about uh, along with all the other speakers on Saturday. Tell us a little bit about how you would update uh, your father's speech and how you would uh, call upon Americans uh, to conduct themselves today. So first of all, um, there's nothing more important than organizing and mobilizing uh, at the grassroots level uh, and people engagement. Uh, the problem is there is so much chatter out in communities that people resist and move back and decide not to participate and don't realize, again, elections have consequences. Uh, when you see all of the things that are impacting us now, the fact that history is not being taught, uh, and I, I want to go back to 63 real quick, but then I'll come back to, to today. Uh, in 63, you had such incredible organizers like Wyatt Rustin, brilliant minds, uh, uh, scholarly minds, pro strong proponents of nonviolence. And of course, along with Wyatt Rustin, Cleve, uh, Cleve Robinson from another union, and in Washington, uh, again, one of your former colleagues, Walter Fonsroy. Um, and that organizing team and many more uh, they created a list of demands. Uh, one was increasing the minimum wage so that everybody could have a living wage. Uh, it was $2, which sounds like just a little bit. Now we have $15 minimum wages in some places, but we're still trying to get the minimum wage up to where it needs to be for people to make a, a living. Uh, back then, we had, we probably spent several billion dollars. Today, uh, in 2023, this coming year, we probably will spend $1 trillion plus, probably $1,500,000,000. And yet, the issue is we're spending as a community, black folk, but we don't, we don't, uh, we, we're, not, we, we're not able to, we hadn't been able to save, we hadn't been able to create a discretionary income. Uh, the average white family today has about $175,000 saved up. Average black family has less than 20,000. It's gotten worse because of the pandemic uh, for all of us. And then the most critical issue is this, in my judgment, of people that do not remember their history are doomed to repeat the mistakes of the past. We have states around this country that are codified laws to write history out of, to, to, write, to, to abolish our history, to ban books, 
uh, not just black history, it's also uh, about the Holocaust. I mean, it's, it's a number of issues. It's about, uh, you know, is Islamic history. I mean, all the things that really should make us great. Diversity is what makes us potentially great. We're trying to act like diversity doesn't need to exist because somebody is afraid that one of the things that's happening very quickly is those who have been considered minorities. The, it's going to be a minority-majority nation very shortly. And so there are many who are afraid. What does that mean for me as a white uh, European? I mean, I, I'm sure that that's what some people are thinking in their minds. So you've got elected officials who have designed laws uh, to oppress. Dad used to say that oppression is legislated. In 2023 and 2022, we've seen that at a new level, suppressing uh, our, our, our rights, our laws. So what we're talking about is we know the majority of Americans are on our side. You know, also I'd add that this is the largest coalition. It is the, uh, not just the African-American community, the, the main civil rights organizations. It is the, it is labor. It is uh, the LGBTQIA community. It is the Jewish community. It is the Islamic community. Uh, it is the Asian community. Every last one of the communities just about that I talked about, uh, there have been uh, hate exhibited against them and bigotry. We had an Asian hate crime here in Atlanta recently, as well as we have, uh, you know, Jewish members going to their synagogues and uh, Nazis standing out protesting in 2023. I mean, you know, <laughs> they're so not in 1923. Sure. So we, what we're saying is we don't have a choice. We've got to come together, uh, all of those of us who've been silent. We need the, those that, and Dad used to say that he wasn't concerned about those who he was concerned, but he was more concerned about the silence of good people. And I think there are far more good people than there are those who are of ill will. And the good people have to come together. And that's what this is about. It, you know, it's not a, uh, it, normally we say commemoration. It's not, there's not, there, we're not celebrating. We are recommitting, quadrupling our efforts. We saw the insurrection uh, on January 6th. We are seeing a resurrection on August 26th. And that's what we are encouraging all the people to come together and say, look, our work is cut out for us. It starts, however, with being to voting in this year, the elections that are taking place in 23 and the election, the, the presidential election and many others that are taking place in 24. If we were voting as we should and have the capacity to, we would be we would be moving forward. The interesting thing is the universe moves forward. Energy moves forward. Humankind, some of them are trying to move us backward. It, it's not sustainable what they're talking about doing. It's very unfortunate, it's tragic, it's frustrating. I mean, someone would compare and say, well, you know, the slaves, you know, they in Florida, Governor of Florida would say, well, they, they benefited from, from slavery, they got a skill. Well, if that's what you're saying, then you're making a case for reparations, it sounds like to me, because Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and I think that it's so important for you to bring this up. Uh, and I won't uh, call it from my memory. A lot of people may 
lose track of the fact that just a few months before the march, uh, your dad was sitting in the jail cell down in Birmingham. Uh, and he penned his now famous letter to me. Uh, I told a group the other day, and I, and I wasn't being uh, facetious. I really meant this. Uh, I think his letter from the Birmingham City Jail uh, was a time, maybe the second most timeless document I've ever read. The Bible stands in first place. Uh, but what he wrote in that letter, dealing with the notion of time, you remember he talked about time being neutral. Uh, he got this letter from some white clergyman. He told them they thought his cross was right, but his timing was wrong. And that's when your dad talked about what you just mentioned, that the, pe the people of ill will in our society was making a much better use of time than the people of goodwill. Time is always where we make it. And the time is now right for us, as you said, to recommit ourselves uh, to the fulfillment of that dream, which is no more than the American dream. And that's why we're going to Washington uh, this weekend. And that's why we want people to come to Washington and people who can't get to Washington uh, to meet uh, in solidarity in whatever way you possibly can. Because the next uh, 15 months in this country will determine, in my opinion, whether or not we continue this march toward a more perfect union or whether or not the clock gets turned back. And so I think uh, that people have to remember that every one of us, Rosa Parks, uh, played a role. A. Philip Randolph played a role. Bayard Rustin played a role. Martin Luther King Jr. played a role. Whitney Young, uh, all uh, Roy Wilkins, all John Lewis. They all played roles. They had different roles to play. But by each one of them fulfilling the role uh, that they had to play, bringing uh, their energy to us, harnessing that energy, and directing it toward the target. That's what we want to do this weekend. Bring all these uh, thoughts and minds together, bring this energy and harness it so we can direct it, direct it toward the polling places all over America uh, for the next uh, 15 months uh, so that we can continue this trek uh, toward a more perfect union. That's what this is all about, in my opinion. What's yours? Well, Con Congressman, you are right right on target. It, it, it really is about galvanizing uh, people. It is about uh, reframing the discussion um, you know, one of the things that we need to be thinking about is, is there a way? It certainly is not the way Congress is constituted today in terms of the, the distribution of, of one party or another. But what are we going to do with a court that is going to continue to vote backward and not look forward? 
The only thing we can do is, in my judgment, one of the things is we may have to talk about expanding the court. Well, how does that happen? Masses of people come out to the polls and vote. We've seen some early indicators of possible uh, sentiment. For example, in Ohio, Ohio tried to push the envelope so far and Ohioans came out and said, no, we're not with that. Um, I think there's a whole lot of sentiment, by the way, under current, the, the, an undercurrent that, that we can't necessarily see. But every time what generally happens is people push in a direction and they feel like they're so right and they overstep. And I, I'm, I'm glad they're overstepping because that will mobilize others to say, you know what, I got to go out and vote. Uh, because I've got to vote what is in the interest of me. What has happened is there's been a perception that, you know, one side is doing nothing and the other side is doing everything. And I, I, I this is, it is politics. So, you, you know, I, I don't ever want to just be hostily critical against uh, some on the Republican side, but there are many individuals on the Republican side who seem to be beyond extreme, beyond. Uh, it's fine to be conservative. There are a lot of black folk that are conservative. Uh, but when you go to the extreme and you suppress the rights of people, that is wrong. That is unacceptable. That really is un-American. As I said, the people come here from all over the world. And then we talk about democracy. What is really on the line is democracy. Absolutely. Are we to protect, preserve, and expand democracy? Or are we going to go in a, in a different direction? Because some of the leaders on the Republican side seem to exhibit, exhibit leadership that says, "I'm I'm a king. I'm you know we this is authoritarian. This is not democracy, and we really do need to protect, preserve, and expand democracy." So that's a part of what this is about. It's about engaging in protecting the rights not of one group or another, but it's protecting the rights of all people. Affirmative action was never put in place to give somebody an advantage who was not qualified, it was to rectify a system that had never included a group of people. And what most people don't realize, those who were the beneficiaries of most affirmative action mostly were white women, not, not black folk. But anytime you code it in race, it causes people's hairs and things to stand up. And so you code it in race and then you create a defeatist kind of scenario, and you temporarily, this is here's a temporary win. It's not long-term and it's not permanent, but the people have to stay engaged. And that is what we're asking people to do. Be engaged. And the first, the, and that the simple thing that we can do is just vote. I mean, I, I don't mean that just voting gets it because we also have to, we have to stay engaged on, on the battlefield to some degree. But voting is so paramount because had we voted, we probably wouldn't be in this mess we're in today, um, because that's absolutely. Impressed. But you know, uh, let, let's let's give some credit here to what happens when when voting really takes place. Go to Kansas City, what two years ago, or uh, about a year and a half ago, I was out in Kansas City, Missouri. Uh, I'm sorry, I was in Kansas City, Kansas, and they had just finished voting uh, on uh, that referendum. Uh, on a, a woman's right to choose. Yeah. And we won. Everybody thought the vote was going the other way. That's right. But we won. Wisconsin. Uh, the Supreme Court of Wisconsin. That's right. 
now in our favor because people turned out to vote in Ohio two weeks ago. Everybody, they tried to move the 50% plus one to 60%. But people went out and voted and said, no, we are going to change because we know it may be a woman's right to choose today. It's going to be minimum wage tomorrow. And so they voted to keep them from changing. God. So you're right. When people turn out to vote, and it ain't about young people versus old people, male versus female, black versus white, uh, as your dad made it uh, so clear in that speech, we only cannot walk alone. He said that in that speech. That's right. And as we walk, we must, must make the pledge that we should always march ahead. We cannot turn back. That's what this is this weekend, to recommit ourselves to reaching out to people uh, across the aisle, if they're there, people across gender lines, racial lines, uh, you name it, bringing people together, everybody playing the roles that they can play uh, in order for us to have a more perfect union. That's what this is all about. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. No, no question. In, in fact, when you think about, uh, and I know Congress, when you have been a, a very strong proponent of history, um, when you think about a couple hundred years ago in, in 20, you know, and, and excuse me, 1823, it was not just illegal. You could, you know, if someone, a black person learned to read, they could cut your hands off. Um, and they did that. Oh, yeah. 200 years later, now you're telling folk you can't teach about slavery, enslaved people. Now, how sane is that? And, and it's about, well, you know, we don't want children to lose their self-esteem or we don't want people to feel guilty. This nothing is about, it's not about collective guilt. It's about a collective responsibility. How do you responsibly uh, make sure that these awful things that were done in history never ever can prop their heads, their ugly heads up again? And we, we, we're seeing that, that sentiment just all, all over the place, that, that ugly sentiment, that ugly underbelly of this country. Uh, when this country comes together, we have such an amazing uh, ability uh, to transform, to change society, to address anything. When you look at, you know, what we've done technologically, I mean, Dad even used to say, we can sort of swim the, the seas, you know, as fish. We can fly in the air like birds with our technology. But we hadn't learned the basic tenets of how to get along with our brothers and sisters as human beings. And we still haven't learned that. And it was taken to an unacceptable level in the last administration. It was put on steroids. I mean, we used to, your, your colleagues, probably some of them still in Congress, used to have a civility. You might have disagreed, but you disagreed in civility. Dad and mom taught us how to disagree without being disagreeable. Civility temporarily in the political space is lost. It has to be brought back. I'd say it even further because we're seeing the violence escalate. Dad used to say we must learn nonviolence or we might face non-existence. 
And in his last book that he wrote in 1967, which is so prophetic to where we are today, the book entitled, as you know, Where Do We Go From Here? Chaos or Community. So we are seeing chaos. We are living in chaos. And if we don't get a handle on chaos, then uh, we will never be able to create community and long-term sustainable life for our children and our grandchildren and generations yet unborn. That search of the beloved community, your dad, your dad uh, talked about so often, and I know that we may be uh, testing your time here, but in, in my uh, closing comments, and now uh, I'll let you have the last word here today, but I just want to say this. You've said a couple of things, that, and I know that my listeners on this podcast are tired hearing me uh, talk about Alexis de Tocqueville, uh, but there is something in that two-volume work that he wrote way back in the 1830s uh, that I keep going back to because I really believe that this is what it's all about. This is what you just finished saying. The Tocqueville said to us in that work that America is not great because it is more enlightened than any other nation, but rather because it has always been able to repair her faults. Repair her faults. That's what makes the country great, to be able to identify the faults that exist and, and repair them, not give in to them, not run away for them, from them, face up to them, and work to repair them. We're not a perfect nation. None of us are perfect beings. But all of us should be working on what we can do to become better beings, to repair whatever faults we may have, and work together to repair the faults that exist in this uh, community. If it's healthcare, we got to make healthcare accessible and affordable. Education, energy, uh, housing, whatever it is, we need to work together to make it accessible uh, to everybody and affordable by everybody. That's where we want to come together. We want to recommit ourselves this weekend uh, to that notion. And fundamental to all of it, as you've said so uh, vividly here today, fundamental to it is voting. And we have got to do everything we possibly can to make sure that people cast their votes. Don't just get registered, but get registered and help mobilize and make sure that we turn out the vote next year because nothing short of democracy is at stake. If we fail to do it, the other side has already committed themselves to an autocracy. And that, to me, will be the end of equity and equality. I'll yield to you for your last word. Well, Congressman, first of all, I want to I want to thank you uh, again for what you do each and every day, and for the opportunity to share on on this podcast that uh, is certainly uh, listened to by a, a lot of people or watched by a lot of people. 
Um, when I think about the, fir the first thing, though, I thought about as we were approaching this period was what would my mom and what would my dad be thinking? And on the one hand, you know, I heard a couple of things and I said, you know, dad is not just turning over, he's spinning in his grave. Like, oh my God, oh my God. Because the work that he did and his team, the work that my mom did and her team, and so many of us, countless nameless uh, persons that we may not, may, may not know their names, they opened doors that should have never been closed. But perhaps we went to sleep. When you think about it, Dad's last sermon was at the he preached at the National Cathedral was entitled Remaining Awake Through a Great Revolution. And now we've allowed some to take the term wokeness and characterize it as negative and evil. But yet, because people were awake and engaged, we got a civil rights act. Because people were awake and engaged, we got a voting rights act. Because people were awake and engaged, we got fair housing legislation and countless numbers of other things. So the time now is to reawaken, not to say, well, woke is bad. No, woke is important for change to take place. And this, again, when you're talking about salvaging democracy, I never would have thought that we would be at a point where there was a possibility that democracy could be lost. But people need to understand this is extraordinarily serious. As you said, this election, for me, again, is beyond consequential. And although we've had consequential elections in the past, this one may for our time, be the most consequential. You know, I, I didn't realize that I would live 65 years and live after my mom and dad and so many others, including yourself, had done things to move our nation forward in, in a very short period, in like three and a half years or less. Everything that was worked for is actually repositioned. It does not mean that it's permanent, but you know, it started with the courts because our court system, uh, I mean, even the the ethics of the court, I mean, they, they don't have, they, they have ethics for the lower courts, but they don't have any ethics for themselves. I mean, that's beyond hypocrisy. And yet they're not doing anything, it seems, to move in a direction to say, well, we need to have some kind of ethics. Uh, whether it's Justice Thomas, whether it's Justice Alito, Justice Rodgers, the list goes on and on. There's a real problem there. And that's why I said, I don't know how you address it other than expanding the court, because they themselves are not going to do the right thing. They've shown us that. In fact, what they've shown us is when we come together, we're going to turn the clock back. And that is destructive and counterproductive. Uh, some, you know, would, would talk about Citizens United and all the money that has been put on the table. I mean, how am I as an average citizen uh, able to compete with a corporation that can give unlimited amounts of dollars? How is that fair? I'm not saying the corporation shouldn't participate, but just to have unlimited ability, uh, because I don't have that kind of 
a level of resources. Most of us as individuals don't have that. So how are we able to compete? How is that fair? But anyway, that's a, another issue that, that has to be addressed. But the most important thing is going back to protecting, preserving, and enhancing and elevating our democratic systems and structures. And I can't say enough, as you've already said, Congressman, we have got to vote, vote, and vote in every election, not just some, but every time there's an election. People sometimes don't vote, in, and in my state, for example, uh, the Republican Party won, and there were about eight seats uh, that were lost by less than 2% in the state legislature. And those eight, cent, eight seats with less than 2% could have kept the legislature from putting in draconian laws around voting. I mean, they have the ability, they haven't executed or done, uh, uh, they haven't uh, done it yet, but they have the ability, if they don't like, just in Florida, what, what we saw DeSantis do, he put two attorney generals, uh, two state uh, DAs, two district attorneys, he suspended them and put somebody else in place because he didn't like what they were doing. Now, it seems to me that that is certainly undemocratic. But again, they voted the laws in. And in Georgia, they, uh, the elections commissions in every 159 counties we have, if they don't like the results of an election, the Republicans can remove that election board and put in someone else. That means you're discounting the votes of people. And this is legal at this particular moment. Now, again, eight seats that were lost by less than 2% could have made the difference. That's why people don't understand. We'll go in and vote for the president. That's great. But you got to vote all the way down the ticket. You got to vote for judges. You got to vote for county commissioners. You got to vote uh, for state legislative seats and so many others. You got to vote for the amendments. So part of what we got to do is to educate our community. I used to say often, and I know you have as well, Congressman, that voter voter education, along with voter registration, can possibly create voter participation because the system is a little complicated and complex. We don't understand all the nuances sometimes, and that might be a hindrance. Therefore, we got to do more voter education to elevate the registration, which perhaps will elevate the participation. So what I finally would say is, you know, we need to stay in good trouble as your Late colleague, <laughs> all of us, we got to get in good trouble. Don't give in. Don't give up. Don't give out. Keep moving toward the ballot box so that freedom, justice, and equality can become real for all humankind. Thank you very much, Martin Luther King Jr. III. And you have been listening uh, to another edition of Clyburn Chronicles. See you in Washington on Saturday. Thank you for listening to this episode of Clyburn Chronicles. If you enjoyed this episode, please let us know by leaving a comment. And don't forget to subscribe to my show wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode. Until next time, I'm Congressman Jim Clyburn.